Well, hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix in Canada. I'm your host, Dylan Clark-Moore, and as always, I do want to warn about the possibility of spoilers and that we keep an explicit tag on this show in case of language and subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. With that out of the way, let's get into it. Today we are welcoming back for his basically record-setting sixth time on the Netflix podcast. Welcome back, Jason Gray. It is a pleasure and an honor to have been here that many times. I'm a regular listener and I'm happy to be a contributor. The movie we're here to talk about this episode is from the year 2016, distributed by Netflix and written and directed by Gerard Barrett. We're going to be talking about Brain on Fire. As always, we're going to take a look at how Netflix themselves introduced this movie. First, when you hover over the title, it says, A mysterious illness is devastating her body and mind. Her doctors are baffled, but she's determined to find answers. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fair description, I guess. I don't think she's actually determined to find answers. She's a little busy. Yeah. And then the alternate description is... Stricken with seizures, psychosis, and memory loss, a young New York Post reporter visits doctor after doctor in search of an elusive diagnosis. And the movie is described as emotional. All right. Jason, Brain on Fire was your choice. Yeah. We had a hard time whittling it down between a couple of couple of options. I did. But uh, Brain on Fire is going to give us an opportunity to... Talk about some shit that's gone down for well, you recently. That was kind of the impetus for me was, okay, this is not the best movie of the choices that I had, but I had a specific um, connection to it that you're going to be hard-pressed to find in another person anytime soon. Hopefully. And so I just felt, well, it's on Canadian Netflix. I should probably talk about this one. And it's, it's happened to just come out on Netflix while I was in hospital dealing with, you know, a similar type of trauma. And um, so, yeah, when I, you know, when it came time to choose a film, it just felt like, well, this is going to inspire quite the discussion, which I think is the whole point of the film's story being told in the first place. Absolutely. And so it seems apropos. So how do you want to tackle this? Do you want to talk about the movie proper? Do you want to talk about your experience? Where should, where do you think we should start? Well, one thing I was thinking about was, I will get into my experience for sure in a, in a moment since I was deep in it when I did watch this movie. So uh, we'll I'll get to that in a second. One thing I was thinking when I was watching it the other night was making something like this into a movie seems such a bizarre thing. You know, like telling your story is one thing. Mm-hmm. But making it into a movie, and don't get me wrong, I love cinema. But I mean, it seems geared to be to be told in a specific way. It's just like I'm imagining myself being her. Like this is my life, and now I'm making a movie out of it, out of the biggest, the greatest trauma of my life. It seems on some level it's like important to tell the story, important to try to put people in the experience, but it also can have the effect of simplifying and trivializing certain things too. Right. I mean, this is based on the the real Susanna Cahalan, yeah, yeah. Uh, who wrote a memoir about it. And are you saying that that just seems like a more appropriate platform for telling well, you, this story? Well, yeah. And so making it into a movie, certain, especially this one, like I've heard, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, one of the critics said this is like a disease of the week kind of movie, which probably is not quite worthy of the story perhaps you know so i don't know but that said watching through the movie some things hit me really hard some things were quite well realized and i can say i can elaborate on that by saying where my context is coming from so on may 22nd uh, i had been saying there's a similar in, in the film she ends up staying with her parents for a little while 
um, because her mother's worried about her. Well, I had a similar issue happening. I was on a drug. Um, I have MS, and I was on a drug that suppresses my immune system to prevent attacks from happening. And it does this by trapping white blood cells in your lymph nodes so that fewer of them can cross the blood-brain barrier and attack. So I'd been on it for a little over a year, and I started feeling weird towards the beginning of this year. And I just had this weird kind of malaise. And I said to mom, mom, I think I feel like I'm slowing down. Like, and I kept asking her things like, do I have a speech impediment? Is that changing? Is something changing? And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. It was so subtle. But you know your own body. And I knew something was off. And I was having trouble with my heels. They felt really soft and squishy when making contact with the ground. And I didn't feel safe doing things on my feet. So anyway, I stayed with them for a while. And then I was preparing to go back to stay in my place because, you know, it had enough. I wanted to be independent again. If I had stuck with that decision, I would be dead right now. On May 22nd, I climbed a flight of stairs to go to bed at my parents' house. And the next morning, when after 45 minutes of my parents attempting to wake me up, when they did, I was paralyzed from the shoulders down. With the exception of I could lift my right arm and slightly open and close the hand. And that was it. And I couldn't see very well either. So basically what had happened, we found out, because my doctor had missed getting a very important blood test, which would have told him what my white blood cell count was before he put me on prednisone, a further immunosuppressant. What happened was my white blood cell count was zero when I was admitted to UH. You can live, they say a person can live about three days, and I was probably at about day three when I was entered into it. So I'll elaborate on that more as we talk about the film and the things that she goes through. But um, essentially, I was, there was an inflammation, an infection that developed. We still don't really know what it was because I had no immune system that caused an inflammation of my frontal lobes. And the frontal lobes are responsible for motor control, inhibition, impulse control, basically everything, right? And so, like my doctor said, it's what separates a human being from the rest of the animal kingdom, right? Because we can make decisions. We can, we can have an instinct to do something and we can choose to not go through with it. But I was, that was gone. So I just said whatever was on my mind and I didn't really have a clarity of thought. As, you know, as that happened, my body shut down. But as my mind began to clear up, things began to come online again. But we'll all dis- discuss that more as we go into the film. But she was going through, when I watched this story, like this came out one week after I was admitted to hospital, which is really messed up. And then so I wasn't watching anything for, for the first few weeks in hospital. I was not interested. I couldn't even operate my iPad. I did everything with voice control. One, I was told when I was at Parkwood that I was referred to, I'm not sure affectionately or not, by other patients as the rooster on the floor. I was very loud and I would scream all night for weeks. Um, Even when I thought, when I look back at it and I thought I was out of what I called my fugue state, even when I would have, I was having great days, the nights would be terrible. I would just go into it. And um, I remember when I was moved to another room, as I was starting to get better and they could move me out of acute care, I spoke with my nurse, you know, and I said to her, listen, I need to tell you to your face before anything happens tonight, I'm a feminist I have nothing but respect for women and what you do here, what you nurses do. Because I guess I had made really inappropriate advances toward nurses, said very graphic things to them, things that I would never say. And I was eating foods I would never eat, like that I I was actively disciplining myself not to eat. But when the gloves came off, it was just, I went for everything. So yeah, I was completely out of my mind. And my mom was so terrified. Like when the doctor said, is this his normal state? Is this his baseline? She was, of course, definitely not, you know, so she showed them interviews I had done and things like this. Then they really stepped things up. They were sending results all over the country to try to figure out what was happening to me. And because I had underlying MS damage to begin with, like it just made everything worse on top of that. So I had to learn how to do everything again, brush my teeth, everything went back to scratch. And so we only get a little, a truncated look at that in the film, but she, you know, she went through a similar experience where she had an inflammation of a hemisphere of her brain, which again affected different things in her than I, than I had affected. But so I just thought, you know, this is a film that I can really talk about for multiple reasons. You know, it gets into whole the nature of storytelling as well. And like, how do we convey an experience that we've had to a larger world and make them a little more aware of it?
I mean, you're yeah. We're obviously going to talk about your experience as we go. I, I liked the 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 comment that you made reference or the review that you made reference to about it being a disease of the week type movie because right. Brain on Fire really does have the Lifetime movie sort of vibe to it. It's a terrible title, and I hate that the doctor in the movie says it. I don't feel having been around doctors now, like I spent five months of my life in hospitals. Doctors don't say things like. His brain's on fire. <laughs> right. Especially know? after the exhausted father has just screamed at him, tell it to me plainly. And yeah. Like, All right, let me explain it in this oddly metaphorical yes. way that doesn't yeah. actually explain what's happening. It's just, you know, there's a there's a too much sensationalism to it. And for me, Chloe Grace Moretz, I've never thought she was a good actor. I mean, I liked her in Kick-Ass, but she was a kid, and it wasn't because she was being a good actor. It was like, hey, wow, kids never talk like this in movies. Right. And so that was cool. She was cool. But when she's having her freakouts in the office, I'm just like, oh, my. It was so painful for me to watch. It was so <laughs> – for like I, I'm watching that, and I'm like, this girl's never really had a trauma in her life. She can't perform it. I don't know what's happening right now. When she's like – when she's in the office, she's like, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I just like – Nothing about her face was telling... She didn't know where she was as an actor. I don't think she knew what she was doing, what she could do. And um, when she started to get into what I would call her fugue in the latter half of the film, it was a little more convincing, a little better. I'm inclined (laughs) to agree. Uh, I think the Tyler Perry role as the editor on on the editorial floor, like he was... He was so hammy and just so clearly performing. This is what a gruff editor would behave like. Yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, so it took, I, I was going to say it took a while to get into it, but I never really did get into it. Like yeah. the, the tone of the movie, it just felt, I don't know, it felt cheap. And like this yeah. this story. The narration like on top of it, like, you know, that she has, like all of this stuff, it just felt like set up, set up. It was treated almost like a, almost like a horror film like she's like okay now she's starting to feel weird but we know what's coming right it's all telegraphed it seems more like a book on tape than a movie yeah that's a good point it's it's really it's clearly an adaptation of a memoir yeah and so it i don't even i wouldn't even say that the movie is unfilmable and i haven't read the book to be fair i've read a couple passages just because i'm like well this could be grist to my experience like what i'm going through what other book can i read that has some sort of similarity to my experience because it literally was like when my brain when my higher functions were affected and impeded everything all the way down to the bottom floor of my body was affected and um i am so lucky like to be here and not only to be here like i I wanted to die when the ambulance took me from my parents' house, the only thing I remember saying on the way to the hospital was, do not resuscitate. And I emphasized this over and over again because I felt like I was terrified that I was going to be vegetative. I didn't know what was happening to me, but I was just, I don't know. I still don't know what was going through my head when I said those words. And thankfully, it didn't get to that point. Like My brain started to come, as we would say, online. I knew, mom and I both knew that it was coming back when I called her one morning. I would make calls every day at 6 a.m. to people. I don't know, like I was trying to poke holes in things because I believed that this wasn't real and that the outside world, something, the jig would be up if I contacted the outside world. But anyway, I called my mom one morning and said, mom, I want to get healthy again. I want to start eating healthy again. And so that was like my first, I think, concerted effort to better myself. Because they had me on antipsychotic drugs because I had suicidal ideation. I had been researching euthanasia sites all the whole nine yards. So, I mean, we speed through it in the film. We speed through her experience. And I could. it's not surprising to me that she's a journalistic writer and not sort of a literary writer in the sense of like, you know, and so when you read passages of her book, it feels like, yeah, this could be like an, something in Esquire magazine or something, right? Like it's, it's much simpler. And um, I don't know that we get a full... In the movie, it just feels like such a passing glance at, you know, this terrible trauma. It doesn't feel enough. You know what I mean? Like worthy enough. I mean, like when you think about how much of her life was shut down. When she gets the music from her boyfriend, when he sends that in, that kind of hit 
the heartstrings for me because people, my friends, and I have so many great friends, were sending me things. And I would just, at first, I would just have a blank face and no connection to them. I had no connection to my own work. I didn't care about any of it. Being a filmmaker, I didn't tell any of the staff there. Like other people, my friends would come and advocate for me and say, look, this guy's a genius. He's not this person right now who's basically just obsessed with eating chocolate bars and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so seeing some of those parts of the film like did hit a note and then it was just like, okay, there's some reality in this. There's some parts of if the whole film had focused more on this feeling, it would have been a lot stronger. I think the most powerful moments are the ones where, is it that Carrie Ann Moss, the mom, uh, calls out that she says, like, I see my daughter in there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. when you're looking in her eyes, you can see that she's there and she's screaming to get out. My mom had the exact same, like, she said the exact same thing. Like, so when after she watched the film, like, she felt like a real connection to Carrie Ann Moss's character. And she was she was playing a ball game that no one else was playing in that film. Like she was above <laughs> above bar in that film compared to everyone else for sure. Guys, this is our daughter. This is this is serious. Why aren't you guys why aren't you guys more worried? Why can't you act better? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious how there's so much of Brain on Fire and I guess maybe maybe a Lifetime movie isn't even the best way to describe it. Like, it almost seems like a, a fundraising video for whatever she had. Yeah. Um, because so much of it is about not knowing what's going on with her. Like, seeing this degradation and having all this uncertainty. And then the big climax is finally figuring it out. The right doctor comes along with the right yep. questions, the right tests, and figures it out. Did Did they know what was wrong with you pretty much right away? Or was there this period of uncertainty and it was just a question of of how to treat it or well it's interesting because when i was at parkwood that's i I was admitted into the eight what's called the abi wing which is the acquired brain injury now that's for me even there at parkwood nobody really knew because i didn't present like a traditional brain injury i didn't have a blunt trauma there was no while I was at Parkwood, there was no real clear residual other than some of my processing speeds on certain tasks were apparently below normal. Although by the time I left, they were all back on board. At first, they suspected a condition called PML. And I can't remember how to say the exact word for that, which is common in these immune um, suppressing uh, drugs. Apparently, 80% of the human race carries a virus called the JC virus, and it's completely you know, inert. It does nothing to you unless your immune system is knocked out. Then it can become this condition called PML, which is basically a brain-wasting disease that will reduce you to absolutely completely disabled and then kill you within about three months. So when they got me in there, that was the first thing they were suspecting and checking for. Thankfully, they ruled that out. They checked me for AIDS. They checked me for every single thing because I had no immune system. I could have contracted anything very quickly. And so some sort of infection, which may have been sinusitis, but we don't really, they don't really know. There was something that was built up in, like, in my forehead area, like fluid. And so that was putting pressure on the frontal lobes of my brain. And um, my MRIs were clear. They showed no new MS activity, no new lesions. And lesions in an MRI for MS, if they are active, will show up as like glowing spots. So there were no glowing spots. Everything was clean. So they ruled out it being an MS relapse. Basically, they didn't know the exact cause of the inflammation. And we still don't 100% know. But it has, thankfully, thankfully it resolved. And actually quite quickly. They said to my mom, it could be 6 to 18 months or more before he moves a toe. And now that's, that was said in the early days of like May 23rd, 24th, 25th maybe. And now here we are at the end of December. And I'm like starting to really move the legs. Like the legs were the last thing to sort of come back. But it's been a fairly rapid recovery, thankfully, all things considered. So was it more that like you had the, you went from this general unwellness to this full on paralysis and then it's been improvement since a then? Slow, a slow improvement. And basically, like at first I was uncooperative with the physio staff at UH and abusive towards them verbally. And um, once I started to cooperate more, they were always saying things to me like, 
Parkwood's tracking your progress. If you want to get into the rehab program, you've got to show a willingness to work. You have to be, you know, rehabable, as it were, rehabilitatable. I don't even know if either of those work as words, but we'll go with it. So thankfully, once I started to cooperate, things started to, to go along better. And everything was pitched as Parkwood is essentially like Oz, right? <laughs> you follow the yellow brick road to Parkwood. Parkwood is going to, you know, you're going to get fixed there. You know, of course, you get out of it what you put into it, and I put a lot into it. But the three months at Parkwood, like when I was admitted to Parkwood, they were still using a, a crane lift to move me from wheelchair to bed, bed to chair. And um, by the time I left, I was just, I didn't see, I barely saw the nurses for the last two weeks at Parkwood. I would hop in and out on my own, et cetera, et cetera. So no, like those three months at Parkwood, you know, and, and the two months at, at UH literally saved my life. I haven't, like I said, I haven't read the book of the film. I do know that it took her quite some time, about a year, to get uh, full functioning back to her body. I just feel like the movie skirting over some of these really important things is really a disservice to the story, even having not read it. That's why I, I found watching it, I'm just like, can you really make a movie about someone's life? Like, It just feels like with a book, it doesn't have to be an entertainment feature, but the movie is automatically geared to like entertain and engage Certain in a, in a different kind of way, a different kind of storytelling way, and I don't believe a movie has to be that way, but this movie was that way. So, what are these things that you felt like they got that got skirted over, and and what did you see too much of instead? Well, I feel we didn't get to know her well enough at the beginning of the film to feel much for her descent, for her decline. You know, it just kind of really began with her decline. Like we got a you know we got a bit of her. But only really what she tells us in narration, not yeah. really, not really anything organically earned story-wise. Here's me. I'm living my life, just doing the thing, and I had no idea what was going to happen. I don't know. That was not necessary. None of that dialogue was really necessary. And then so we see her when they're doing her birthday celebration, and she kind of zones out. She has what I would call a focal seizure because I had many of those when I was first admitted. Like my mom said I would be talking and then I would just stare straight ahead at the wall for like an hour. So yeah, and we're just suddenly moving into it. We're moving into it and she's just kind of, she's getting kind of silly. She's doing this. She's like, she's saying whatever on her mind, right? Which I did as well. But again, like so many things are poorly done in that film that it's just like, I know that there's a power in that story and that's what makes it frustrating. It's like when you're listening to a song that's amazing but the production value of it or the way they captured it is so broken and terrible. Like, I love Joy Division and the only recorded um, version of the song Ceremony that they did as a band was this recorded live recording and that only like the half of it's barely audible, the first half. And the second half, like the recording, whoever was doing it finally turned the mic up or something. And the song's still good, but it's just, it's so painful to listen to it. It's like, it's like having something pulled through cheesecloth slowly, right? And so the film for me, again, having gone through a very similar experience, it's hard for me to watch so many things um, trivialized and skirted over. And it just reminds me of, as much as I love cinema, the limitations of the art form. Because uh, what I would use, one of my favorite terms, the tyranny of narrative. And I believe I first heard that come through from Steven Soderbergh. Yes, and he referred to the tyranny of narrative where no matter what, no matter what emotions you're addressing, you're, the train keeps moving. It's got to keep moving. And there's no stopping the train, right? So we don't have this, the same amount of time to stop and pause the way you have in a book to look at this situation or that situation. And this film really suffers from that tyranny. I'm curious as well. Your your mom was there for for all of this. Yes. I mean, just having the privilege of being your friend, I, I see how close you two are on social media. And I saw that she was, you know, right by your side through a lot of this. And you mentioned that she really connected with the Carrie Ann Moss character in this. So what was it like for, like, why would your mom watch this? Why would she put herself through this to to watch somebody else go through a similar thing? And what is, do you have an idea of what she thinks of the movie or how it felt for her to watch that? She kind of agrees with me that it's like, well, for both of us, we both agreed that it seemed, at least from the movie, that she got off pretty easy compared to me and i'm not like i'm not comparing like tragedies like you know oh my tragedy you know can kick your tragedy's ass etc cetera, etc cetera. but um 
It doesn't seem like the movie went, like I said, went deep enough. It should have, it should have triggered more in me. Like given the fact of how, like soon I watched it, into it, it it did hit some things on the nose. Like I said, and those hurt. Like I cried a couple times watching it. Not necessarily because the power of the film moved me, but there were certain things like when she was listening to the music her boyfriend sent her. And um, when her friend came to see her and she was just sitting there staring straight ahead. And I remember people coming to visit me and I only remember in a hazy way because I would be in and out of it. You know, and my dear, dear friend, Andrew Weiss, who I met, like I sought out because of the podcast he did with you and Only Lovers Left Alive. And I remember saying to you when I did the Upstream Color one, like, how do I meet Andrew? I want to meet Andrew. Anyway, he, when we hang out, like he reads to me all the time. He was reading me a book at the time called The Art of Learning before I went into hospital. He's the first person who came to visit me the night I was admitted. You know, even though I didn't, I said, I don't want you to see me like this. I don't want you to see me like this. He said, and he just said, I love you no matter how I see you. And so he came. I'll probably, <laughs> I'll cry right now if I talk too much about him. But anyway, uh, so he read to me one night. Uh, first of all, when he showed up in my room, I was leaning over the wheelchair, like down with my face almost on the floor. I bent down to adjust my sh- foot or something, and I couldn't get back up. I could not sit back up. So I was screaming for nurses. He came in, and he's like, oh, what can I do? And I was just like, get me the fuck up. Like I screamed at him. I just, get me up out of this position. And so he's like, okay, what do I do? I don't want to hurt you. And I just said, just do it. And so he did, and then I was just like, let's get out of here. And, and so we went out, and I got some food. with my Like, my parents brought me food, and he was reading to me, and I just shot it down. I just said, this is the most boring shit I've ever heard. This is a book I love, right? And, you know, he, he took it. He had to go. He had to excuse himself, and he, he told me only recently, after the fact, how it was. And so he went, and he had to cry. And when he came back, he said, I had this lucid moment. And he knew that I was in there at that point. He knew his friend was still there. Because I said, guys, like I had this moment, I said, I'm so sorry. I have these things in my head and I don't want to say them. Like, it's, it's like, fuck, shit, and all these words. And I just have to say them. I have no control. It just happens. And I'm so sorry if, if I hurt anyone. And then I went back into it again. But he said, I just, it was like poking my head up above water for a few minutes. And um, my, I had that too. And another one of my friends came to visit me. And he, he told me after the fact, because I don't remember a lot of this, dude, because I was talking to my mom, I guess in a very negative way, he said, you're being kind of a dick. And he just said, I, sl- I turned my head to him and I just said, I know. Like, I just knew, but I couldn't do anything about it. And um, so when her friend comes to visit her and afterward, like she's, she's like joking around with her and stuff. Then you see her walking down the hall crying, you know. And I know my mom, she was there every day. I have an image of her face in my face burned in. She got so close that I couldn't see anything else but her face. And that comforted me so much. But I know damn well, and she told me after the fact as well, she would still cry her eyes out all the way home. But she never showed me an ounce of that. So that stuff. And Carrie Ann Moss, the way she you know, advocated for her daughter, even in the face of her own daughter's spite of that, right? Because I was the same. I didn't care about myself, you know, and I didn't care about anybody else. But mom, it's all, she was always there, always and uh, I, you know, my, my whole family, my friends, my network of people, they were there for me. You know, they knew that this wasn't me. And even though I said horrible, mean things to everyone, I made my sister cry on multiple occasions. And then I would catch myself. And even to this day, I will tell you, something's changed about my mind. And not in a negative way, even. Like, I feel like some things may be in the healing process as things rewire. I just... I shouldn't be the guy who's cheering everybody up in my life after everything that I've gone through from this experience, but I feel like somehow more well-adjusted. I don't know. It's really weird. And man, her boss was a dick at the at the paper until the end. Yeah, but I mean, he seemed so, I don't know. It seemed like the character was himself doing a character. Yeah. Like it seemed like he was trying to do this multi-layer thing of like, I know I'm a big softy, but I have to be gruff. Right. Like, nobody was actually scared of him, and he should, like, 
I mean, I know that we say that he's a dick or whatever. Like, he had no reason to think that there was something medically wrong with her. He should have probably fired her after that incident with the senator. That's a good point. It actually raises another issue is that mental illness is so criminally misunderstood. And I am guilty of the same thing because I would often say, like, I would wonder why, how can somebody who look, who can just use their body however they want, they can go to they want. What are you depressed about? What are you depressed about? Mm-hmm. What's the big deal? Why can't you find goodness in your day? And so when I went through this and as my mind started to change and the way that I think about things, everything, I don't know, it gave me a whole new insight. And when I went to the family meeting at Parkwood, one of my physiotherapists, like the head physiotherapist that I worked with, she said to me, in my career working in ABI, I've never encountered a patient so able to elucidate the experience as you have. Most people, they need people to advocate for them now, to speak for them. And I'm just like, what if all those people could tell their story? Maybe they can, but they just, they can't get it out. They can't speak the words. It's there. It's giving me a new insight to that. So I think the film's important in in one sense, but it hurts in another sense because it's so poorly done. I feel like the story deserved better. And um, the way that everyone reacted to her when she's acting weirdly and stuff, and the way that the doctors have said, oh, she's depressed. Oh, she's drinking too much. That's all it is. Because our tests aren't showing anything. And um, the tests for me were rather unremarkable too. They did spinal tap on me. That part pinched a nerve when I watched that in the film when they went at it with the spinal tap because I remember them saying, I just remember, Jason, we're going to do a spinal tap now. And I knew that wasn't something you really want to have happen. Okay. But I was totally numb in my whole body at the time, so I didn't feel that needle going straight into my spine. And that was clean. All my tests were clean, totally clean. Um, It wasn't until a little bit later that some inflammation, like some, it looked like just mucus was building up from sinusitis. So yes, sinusitis could put you in a wheelchair. So if you get a simple ailment, go to the doctor just to be sure. Now that said, I already had underlying damage, right? In my brain and in my spinal cord. So um, it's amazing I can do half the things I can do even before this happened. Even more amazing that I can do them now. Um, thankfully, I'm not on the drug anymore. They took me off that pretty quick. Not on any MS drugs. Interestingly enough, my doctor said I may have inadvertently given myself stem cell treatment because when they do stem cell treatment on you, they eradicate your entire immune system and you grow a new one that theoretically is no longer has memory cells that will attack you. Well, my whole immune system was destroyed by this. It's still, I don't even, I don't think it's still fully back. But yeah, in, in terms of the film itself too, like these little moments, these little moments where the film's kind of allows itself to not push you and push like, this is what the experience was. Check it out. I never felt like I was with Susanna. I was always watching her. And that may, that's a failure of the storytelling. Yeah. There, of the film. Yeah, there are only a couple of moments where where you're feeling what she's feeling or... Yeah, where, where you're in her head instead of in somebody else's. Because it's all just, yeah. it's like, whoa, like, what's all this crazy shit that this woman is doing? But there are the moments when, uh, and I mean, we've called them out already, but the, uh, uh, when she's listening to the music or another time when she's just, like, fiercely, like, looking at somebody and, like, there's there's this terror inside of her that is only expressed through her face and the rest of her is is completely immobile in those couple of moments. Then, then you're thinking about how terrifying this must be to be her. Yeah. But I found in all the other times I was judging the people around her for, I mean, they didn't know. Yeah. I, I, I knew what was going on because I knew what the movie was about. So I was like, Oh, they're, they're you're, you're foolishly missing her illness. here. <laughs> but I, like, that's, that's what I was doing. That's what my brain was doing. That was my reaction was to judge the people around her for failing to recognize what was wrong with her. Like when her dad, like, why was it not a much bigger red flag for her dad that this, like, water drip thing that she was, like, yeah. going crazy, insisting, yeah. like, hey, it just happened. It just happened again. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you sit with that and explore it and try to figure out what's going on and have that be, like, a much bigger sign that something is wrong? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, she's stressed out. That's why she's having trouble walking. That's why she can't, right. like, walk in a straight line. Like, it's like when you don't understand something and the te- there's no result from your technology, it's like... Every now and then you get a little glimpse at what our over-reliance of technology is doing to us. <laughs> but honestly, I think the moment in the film that got me, the, that hit me the most 
emotionally was when her friend came to visit her and walked down the hallway crying. Right. That's those moments are when you feel the enormity of what's happening to Susanna, even though Chloe Grace Moretz maybe couldn't convey it to us. Sure. Seeing how it affects the people that she loves, knowing that in hindsight, how what happened to me was affecting the people around me. And at the time I didn't give a, give a shit. Like I didn't think about that stuff at all. I just thought about what I wanted, you know, and I wanted you to get it for me. And um, when I look back and I think what it must have been like for my friends and family who are used to seeing me being, you know, myself, to see me like that and still be strong in my face. And I know that they cried their way home. They all told me stories about how it was for them once they left my side. And um, I just can't tell you how grateful that makes me feel. And so, like, when I watch that scene and I see how these people are going to the mat, I realize, like, that the, the power of, of human connection and like it extends so far beyond family. Like the, like her, that girl, the, her friend was not a blood relative, but you know, th- her walking down that hallway crying, but not showing any of that to Susanna. Like that's, that's real love. That's mm-hmm. real strength. You know, cause I often th- think that like when you realize that your parents are just human beings, it's a powerful realization as you're growing up. And you realize that, like, the role of a parent is, like, your parent's just as scared as you are as a child. Probably more so because they know more. But they don't let you see it. And so you feel safe. Safe enough to discover your fears in a, in a protected way. And so watching her in her hospital bed and just knowing that going through her head was probably similar to me. Like, just, like, the outside world's out there somewhere and it's still going by. You know, will I get out of here? And what will be left of me when I do? Because there was a period where, I mean, my parent, my family was planning my funeral. Again, I can't, and I was totally oblivious. Like, at one point, my, my mom told me my sister had heat stroke, so she was not going to come today, but she was going to be bringing me some important food. And I said, heat stroke? That's nothing. Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> like, I totally didn't give a shit. I was just like, that's nowhere near as important as what's happening to me. Right. You know, so it was just like, you know, watching, I did feel the times that in the film, I felt like, okay, I could connect. We're definitely Carrie Ann Moss, you know, definitely the, she really convincingly brought motherhood to the table. I just, uh, watching it is frustrating because I could feel that there's a good film in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you make a, a weak film out of such a story? Like I said, once it really got in it, you know, when she's in the hospital, it started to connect more. I wasn't expecting, I didn't have any emotional experience, I don't think, when I first watched it. But um, having a little distance now, having some more clarity of my own, you know, watching it was, was pretty intense. So, and I appreciate you, you know, beforehand, you know, wondering if there would be triggers for me. But triggers... Uh, I don't know. I don't have real sensitivity to it. Everything is a trigger in life, right? I mean, so many experiences you have, like you're going to have, you're going to see something that reminds you of it. So are you glad then that this movie is out there? So that, I mean, would you rather this story be told than no story? Yes. Yes. But watching it a second time, I was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it's, it's so forgettable. Mm. It doesn't make, like if it didn't hit me that hard, like and I cr- I cried a couple times, but not so much because of the movie, more because it was pulling out some stuff from my well. Right. But yeah, I just like it's one of those movies you see and you just forget pretty quickly, and that's not how it should be. Yeah, it was, she's never gonna forget it. Yeah. So we shouldn't be allowed to either. I was telling a friend that uh, ultimately this was the movie that you had chosen, and she just said. Oh yeah, I never bothered to finish that. It was just yeah, you know, it's it's not engaging enough to really. I I would have never watched this. I would have never finished yeah. it if I wasn't doing it for this podcast. And the only reason, like, that I cho- that I chose it. I mean, it's not. It's just like, how could I not? I guess you know what I mean. <laughs> how, how could I not? There's so many movies on Netflix that I would rather do than this. And as I was watching it again, I was just like, oh, I wish I could have done coherence. You know, that's what I want to be doing the podcast on. And man, would that have been a doozy. But it was a doozy. It was good, you know. And um, I've watched that film twice. But, you know, we can talk about that after. But anyway, (laughs) I chose Brain on Fire because 
like again you have as well an opportunity in your podcast to to do a podcast with someone who's had you know right. such a parallel experience to something in the film and how often does that happen right mm-hmm. so the podcast i feel having listened to it enough as well as is always much more it always goes deeper than just being about the film at hand. There's always more going on. Like this is what this makes me think about. And so cinema, you know, is supposed to be, at least for me, it's such a powerful tool of communication. And because we can, we can bring people into a story. Like if you just read about something, like say you're, you know, you're reading the newspaper one day and you find out that somebody tripped over a tree stump and broke their back you'd be like well that's terrible i wish i'm so glad that didn't happen to me i hope he's okay turn the page oh look you know look at the garfield comic today that's really good (laughs) that's funny so i met a man at parkwood who i now consider one of the best friends of my life and he was an eight he was he is an 86 year old man i won't name him just because you know for his own privacy but he had tripped over a tree stump and broken his back. And so, you know, one day I was outside the nurse's station talking with the nurses. I would flirt with the nurses. I loved them all. And you know what? They loved me. I was so, I'm, I'm a friendly person. I love people. And as I got better, I was more and more outgoing and just excited, you know, to be around these people. And, and uh, so I was telling the story one day about my recovery and about what had happened to me. And this lovely woman came out of one of the spinal rooms and she came up to me and she said, can you come speak to my husband? <laughs> Give me a sack of emotions. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she said, can you come speak to my husband? He's, he's really sad. He's really depressed. And, you know, he's, he's used to being a powerful person. So I, I came in and I talked to him and I just, I started making it a daily, a daily endeavor. I would go and see him and spend time with him. We would play chess and I was just trying to help keep him motivated. Sometimes he didn't realize he was making progress because he was so down. And I would notice that he was moving his hands more than he was like a week ago. Like, look at how much you're moving your hands today. Your grip is strong when I hold your hand. And so, um, that's one of the best things that ever happened to me meeting him. The reason I bring this up is because if I had just read about him, I would be moved, but it wouldn't go farther, much further than that. But meeting him and really knowing him, that's the difference. I remember when I watched Super 8, and I love that movie, but the kids are making their, their silly little home movie. And he says to his friend, I can't remember their names, but he just says, you know, I, I was reading this book on, on storytelling, and I think it's really important is that you need a character that someone care, that you care about. And so the story means more. And so we're going to give his character a wife, right? And so he's got something to lose. And so in Brain on Fire, all I felt was like we were being shown what happened from a safe distance. And the reason the film doesn't connect and the reason people will maybe not finish it is because we aren't there with her. So it's basically, again, coming back to the whole fact that she's a journalist, I just felt like it was just a piece out of the newspaper. This happened to this person. Here, here's some footage of what happened. And, um, oh, her mom was really worried. And now we're going to show you that and you'll care. So those little moments where I felt like they nailed it, they almost felt like, accidentally good moments you know what i mean (laughs) like holy shit we did something right but um too little right you know i do wonder if that's born out of trying to be too reverent or too respectful of the real Susanna. just you know she's put this all on paper she's put this into her memoir and so they don't want to play with that too much they don't want to deviate from it and maybe I don't know. I, f- I feel like having watched this movie, I can recommend the book, but I can't recommend the movie, even though I've never read the book. Yeah. I want people to read the story. I want, I want it, you know, I think it's important. You know, we know so little of what's going on inside of us at any time, right? And this just hit her out of nowhere. It just came out of nowhere and nobody knew what it was. Now, what happened to me did not come out of nowhere, but it's still like we don't know much about what's happening inside of our bodies. And any story that can elucidate an experience that can make you maybe more aware of yourself is important. 
And because film is such a powerful tool, that's why this film lets me down in that sense because it doesn't really achieve its potential to bring us into the story in a way that no other medium can. Because I've seen fictional tales, many of which you know brought me a lot more into the fiction and made me believe it than this true story. Right. Because if a story, if, if something feels unbelievable, like what happened to me is unbelievable. Like how could this happen? You can't make this stuff up. So you don't really need to go far with the filmmaking technique. The movie makes it feel more unbelievable, I think, than it actually is. <laughs> you know? I would agree. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's use that as an opportunity to ask the question that I always wrap these conversations up with is, uh, first and foremost, uh, like, do you recommend this movie? Does it get a thumbs up or a thumbs down on your Netflix profile? I, I will recommend the movie um, on the basis of... This is a really kind of rare condition. Now, encephalitis, what I suffered from was somewhere between what they call encephalitis and encephalopathy. They're both a condition of inflammation of the brain. And um, I spoke with other people who had suffered from these things in the past when I was in hospital as well. This, this lovely old woman who had had encephalitis in her youth. And uh, so she kept track of me at UH and we would touch in with each other and she said to me one day, Jason, you seem so strong today. So like every time I speak with you, you're clearer about what you're saying. And so I didn't realize really how bad things were because, you know, when I look back at like as, li- as early as recently into July, a friend of mine came and said that I had left a voicemail. Like it was like a, almost like I didn't, I didn't know I was leaving one. And this was, at the time period where I thought I was well out of the fugue. And it was a, she's a person who's really, really has a dark art style. And she was hesitant to play it for me. She was terrified of the message. And she said, I don't want to play this for you, but I've kept it on my phone for the whole time. And she said, I'm afraid that it'll do something to you. I don't know. But I said, no, no, no. If I can't face this, how can I ever tell my story? And so... She played it for me. And the first minute is literally just white hospital noise. And I'm listening to that trembling, okay? Because I have no idea what's going to happen. And then it's just my voice comes in and I'm calling out to the nurses. But it's like I'm speaking in tongues. I don't recognize that person. I don't recognize anything about that person's voice. And it's terrifying. Anyway, so I said, I want you to keep that message for now, for posterity. But I kind of also want you to bury it and salt the earth. (laughs) You know, but anyway, so I know that there's footage that she had in the film. They don't really go into it, but in the book, they had had a camera set up in the room because they had her strapped into the bed. And so she ended up watching the footage of herself then. And she she was like, who is that person? Mm -hmm. Who is that person? Because I remember, this is the crazy thing. And I think it's, it's apropos since we're talking about film. I have done a few films and each of them seems to have forecasted my experience in a very terrifying way. I remember having a conversation with my spiritual advisor at Parkwood. Is it possible to manifest your own future? You know, it's just like they say that if you think if you think about something too much, you can make it happen. It's like don't look down, don't look down because you'll fall. It's like your brain automatically wants to do what you're thinking. It's just the way it works. And I look at my films, like I look at The Golden Hour, which opens up with four discrete shots of a wheelchair. And it's about a man who's having blackouts. And in the final scene, the film, he's wheeled in in a chair. Where was that shot? On the back lot of Parkwood. A place where I spent many a month and in a wheelchair. But I mean, I didn't realize that we were that close to it until one day my spiritual advisor took me for a ride out back and we ended up at the location where I shot the climax to the golden hour. I didn't realize that we were that close to it. And that was an intense moment being wheeled past it. And in glass, a girl wakes up in a place and she has no idea how she got there. And a man asks her, "Um, do you remember anything? I was asked the exact same questions, almost in the exact same words. And every day they would ask me, like they did in the film, the date, the year. They give me bed baths. That 
got some tears in the movie when they're wiping her down in the bed and she's just listlessly sitting there. That was a daily occurrence for me. I'd have people lift my arms, lift my legs, wipe them down. So there's a point in glass where she's shown a mirror and she says, that's not me. And I had a point two weeks into my stay where I I finally asked someone, can I see a mirror? Because I hadn't seen one yet. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thinking about my film. I wasn't making references. I didn't give a rat's ass at the time. And I looked at myself and I said, that's not me. And there's just, I'm not saying that I made this happen mm-hmm. under any circumstances, but it's a little bit terrifying that the stories I've told could have been told about this experience. And I made them years before it happened. So it's fascinating to me. It just makes me think about art differently. It, it, like all of the things that we do are reflections of both our past and now I think potentially our future. It's, it's fascinating. So a story like this, even though it's limited in, it, it might make someone just through that very fact of this film's not that great, but man, this story, I want to read the book. Mm-hmm. So I think the film's important. It might make people, it, it will likely make people want to read the book right. and learn a bit more. And the more conversation we can get going about this, like mental illness now, like, and I, like I said, I'm guilty of the same thing, like is so misunderstood because the human mind, the brain is so incredible. We don't understand most species. I mean, people think, a friend of mine said to me the other day, like cats don't care about people. They just, they want, they come for affection when they want food. But my cat, long after eating, would come and just sit in my lap and purr and rub against me. And when I was gone in hospital, like before I even went to hospital, when I was staying with my parents, I would come back and visit my cat. And he looked like homeless, like ravaged because he stopped grooming himself. Because why would he groom himself with nobody to care for him? He didn't care. No one around. Mm-hmm. And they groom to wipe your scent off them. So yeah, <laughs> just would you, Jason? I ask for uh, you know an apple, and you tell me all about the tree. But no, I would recommend it. Yeah. Not because it's great cinema, but that's not always the most important thing. Roman Polanski once said, "Pornography is proof that content will always triumph over form." <laughs> so the story told is important enough to warrant a watch of the film. I come down on the opposite side of that in that the real good that came from the book is I guess that it raised awareness about, you know, these kinds of brain inflammations and it led to much more diagnosis and much more accurate diagnoses of was encephalitis. And, yes. Um, and so it had this like karmically good thing that came yeah. out of it because the book got very popular. I don't think that the movie is good enough to become that popular. So I don't think it's right. it's not it's not really adding to the legacy of knowledge that comes from it. And just the experience of watching it isn't anything that I would recommend. And I mean, hey, you know, if, if you're hearing me say this, then you've already listened to somebody talk about the experience. So, you know. You, you're, you've already probably gotten what you might have gotten from the movie from listening to us talk about it. Well, yeah, and it feel it does feel like a TV movie, but it's easily accessible. You know, Netflix takes a chance, takes chances on lots of different types of films. And um, I'm happy, you know, that we can talk about it. And, uh, you know, this is a unique, unique podcast, sure. you know, that we can, it's like, you know, you're talking with someone who's had, what are the odds that in life you would meet someone? who's had this experience, <laughs> let alone someone you already knew, right. right? So, I mean, again, that's why I said, I was just like, well, if I don't do this podcast, yeah. I'm going to maybe listen to someone else doing it and then be like, realize that this is wrong. It should be me. <laughs> I have to do it. Sure. So, yeah. I guess the the nicest thing I'll say, the closest thing to a recommendation that I'll give is that I'm not going to tell anybody to go out and watch it, but if this ended up being part of some kind of like high school curriculum i wouldn't be mad about it right uh you know if it was used as an education piece and a further conversation was required out of it then sure i think one of the harshest criticisms i can give it is it's so inoffensive it should be offensive Mm -hmm. it should offend my senses of like i should be so angry that nobody understands what she's going through but it just didn't care Right. That's that's and I'm a guy who's been through it. Right. So if I don't care, they've failed in a huge way. Right. Uh, and Chloe Moretz, she seems like a sweet person. You know, if you if she's listening to this, and I know she's not right now, <laughs> but stop doing what you're doing. 
<laughs> there's other things. There's other things. Jeez. Or try like it's like some actors just don't seem to improve from film to film, and I don't know why. I don't know why. The best movie she's been in for me is Hugo, but it wasn't anything to do with her. I don't mean to say stop doing what you do. I mean if you love <laughs> what you're doing, do what you're doing. But I just, I'm sad that it was her in the movie. Right. I believe I know the answer to this question, just considering how often you've called her out. But normally we we do just a. Uh, Pick a, an MVP from the movie for you. Would that be Carrie Ann Moss? Carrie Ann Moss, without without question. Like she, uh, she was really there as an actor, and she really, I really felt a connection to like what my mom went through. My mom lost tons of weight. Like, you know, it's like, are you familiar with the book, The Picture of Dorian Gray? Yeah, of course. Okay, so just for any listeners who haven't read the book. In the book, this 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 man hires an artist to do a rendering of him, a perfect preservation of him on a painting. And he makes a deal, you could call it a deal with the devil, that he would sort of be absolved of like sins and he could just sort of do whatever he wanted. Basically, over time, the painting begins to wear the content, the, the effects of his transgressions. My mom was my picture of Jason R. Gray. No matter how horrible I looked, and she will not show me pictures from the time. Like, my head was all swollen. Like, everything about me was, like, twisted. And I've seen a couple pics, and a picture of me smiling and showing my teeth. I don't show my teeth when I smile. I have, like, a big upper lip, like my grandfather, and we just have, like, a smirk. It was terrifying. It was not my smile. So my mom... She wore all of that on like I look at pictures I can't look at pictures of her from the time period. She looked like so wasted away and I'm just like, Oh my god, like I'd do that to my mom. Right. You know? And so I really connect to that. I really do in in this film. So some of that they got right, but um maybe just because they couldn't get it wrong because it was <laughs> like it was there in the story, right? right? It's an interesting recommendation for me to make. There are, there are reasons that, that extend far beyond the film that I'm recommending it. But um, yeah, I think it's an important story. And I hope this podcast as well, like being able to speak with someone else who's had something like this happen can only go that much further, right? So no, it's good. It's given us an opportunity to talk about the film in a unique way. Mm-hmm. All right, Jason. Well, thank you so much for... My pleasure sharing as much of your story as you've been able to and uh and having this conversation is there anything going on with you that people can look out for in the near future or um well glass my most recent film is still circulating in the festival circuit i think we're still waiting to hear back from a couple of festivals i also will say you know we didn't actually talk about what other things we might be watching on netflix right now Netflix. One thing I will put out, and I think it's apropos to this, is this show called Atypical. Um, it's about a young man with on the autism spectrum and sort of the family unit and all this stuff. It's a really, really good show. And just, you know, about how what happens to one person's mind or what, one, what happens happens to everybody in your family. And that's kind of why Carrie Ann Moss's performance hit me too. Because when something like this happens to you, it happens to your whole clan. And I have a tendency sometimes to say, you know, boo-hoo to somebody who's like, they're really stressed out. Like like my sister was like really stressed out about what happened to me. I'm like, well, boo-hoo. I'm more stressed out because it happened to me. Right. But I would often have like, it, it's teaching me some more humility where it's like, you know what? How can I expect someone to be on the same page as me? Because it's taken me going through this to have the insights that I have. How could I possibly expect another person to have it? And I read this quote. Uh, actually, I would love to read it uh, here from Jim Carrey the other day. He says, you stop explaining yourself when you realize people only understand from their level of perception. And that's 100% correct. So for me, one of the most important roles of art form is to help bring someone to your level of perspective. And if we can communicate on that level, we are evolving the human mind. And so even though Brain on Fire fails, sometimes failures are also worthy of experience, oftentimes. So I recommend Brain on Fire under that impetus. 
And again, check out Atypical and check out Glow. I, I always recommend that when I get a chance because it's so great. That's nothing related to what we're talking about. <laughs> but Atypical does have, you know, there's some relation to that. And yeah, no, it's been a, again, it's been a pleasure to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored and excited to have been here six times. Seven, seven's a good number for me. Seven and 11. So I'll be back. That's not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds like a good place to leave it. Thanks again so much, Jason. My pleasure. Well, that ought to do it for episode 94 of the Netflix podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to keep up with all of our comings and goings on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and SoundCloud at whatever platform we're talking about, dot com slash Netflix podcast. And we're also on Twitter at Netflix pod. You can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore on Twitter and Instagram. For more content, be sure to check out netflix.ca, where we keep episode show notes as well as other articles and reviews. In this episode's show notes, you can find links off to our podcast on the movie Coherence, as well as Jason's Vimeo page, where you can watch his first two short films and see trailers for his feature film, Glass. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thanks again for checking out this episode, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or however you find your podcasts to make sure you don't miss the next one. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.